Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts, Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens, discuss tax-advantaged investment strategies to help you grow your wealth. From commodities to real estate, private equity, agribusiness, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens. And today we're going to be talking about multifamily and we're going to talk macro. We're going to talk about machine learning and a lot of different exciting topics. And with me, I have Michael Episcope of Origin Investments. Michael, welcome to the show. Andy, thank you for having me. And I should say welcome back to the show because you are one of uh, our first few guests. So any listeners can uh, check out our our backlog of episodes and listen to the original one. I think I have a better audio set up now. So hopefully it's a little more pleasant, but Michael, I'm going to jump right in. My first question, it's a little bit controversial, but rather than skirt around it, let's just get it out of the way. Uh, I know you're a Chicago guy, so Cubs or White Sox fan? Cubs, absolutely. Not even a question. And it's been a little uh, difficult to watch lately, but uh, you got to have some patience. They're rebuilding right now. And um, I would say that Wrigley Field, though, there's no better place, even when they're losing, to watch a baseball game. Yeah, you know, it, it is an awesome uh, field. I just took my kids to a Tigers game. And so, you know, as a Detroit Tigers fan, I think uh, the Cubs or almost any team in major, major League Baseball probably having a better season than we are. Um, but anyway, good an- either answer would have been accepted for the record. Um, except unless you say, Oh, I like both, you know, that's just sort of hedging your bets. Nobody, nobody likes that, but I want to jump in and talk about origin multilytics because this, uh, this is actually, and, and for our listeners, actually, I should disclose something in all seriousness. I am an LP investor at origin. Uh, this isn't a sponsored episode or anything like that. I just happen to like the product. So, uh, origin products are part of my own portfolio, but I didn't even know about origin multilytics. So I was reading this report that you all published, uh, the multifamily markets to watch 2022. Uh, and that included five cities, which your team believes are appealing markets for investors. And I know the methodology included both, uh, practical experience and knowledge, uh, but also, this origin multilytics, which is quote, a proprietary suite of machine learning models. So for our listeners, some of which may not be, uh, may not be as familiar with machine learning. Could you talk a little bit about what it is and, and how it works into your investment process? Yeah. Let me, first of all, thank you for partnering with us, Andy. Um, it, when it, I'll take you back a little bit of like why we even created our own machine learning and in the world of finance, whenever you're creating a model, one of the most important variables in any model is growth. And especially in real estate, and historically real estate has grown, multifamily real estate at two to 3% revenue growth per year. And um, that can fluctuate though. Some years it's zero or even minus two, and then other years it's plus five or plus six. We've never seen anything like we have in the last couple of years where you're getting north of 20% in certain markets like Austin and Tampa and Nashville and places like that. So it's really kind of um, thrown, uh, you know, traditional models or traditional thinking out the window. Because Michael, are, are you talking about rent growth or are you talking about just asset price when you- No, I'm sorry, rent growth. Yes, okay. yes. Because it's really rent growth and, and revenue growth is one of the most important 
uh, things that you can model, you know, put into any model, right? At 3%, the deal works great and you're doubling your money. At zero, you might be losing your money. And it sounds like that's a thin margin. Uh, you know, it's going to depend on other factors, leverage and things like that. But it's really important to get growth right. And for us, we were basically renting uh, a product that was in the market and several products. And we would look at these together. And then you use historical averages. And, and it was one of these things that we were really frustrated by because there were times that um, both looking at deals where you got rent growth wrong and it wouldn't crush the model. We've always been conservative in the way we've underwritten, but it was also about missing deals. And, and if we're underwriting two and a half percent in our model, that's going to create an economic value that we're willing to pay for an opportunity. Whereas if somebody else is using three and a half percent in their rent, in their revenue growth, they're going to be able to pay a much higher price. Well, if the reality is that the rents grow at five percent, um, we would have made a tremendous amount of money in that deal. Um, you know, in the three and a half percent, the people who actually paid more than we did made a lot of money. And so we're always um, looking at ways we can innovate. We're looking at our decision making. And so it was about three years ago that we decided to hire uh, two individuals from the University of Chicago, some data science students there. And it was sort of like a Hail Mary. Hey, let's bring them in. Let's bring them in as interns. Let's tap them in. And they're incredibly bright. Um, and we sort of took what was in our head, and I should say the acquisitions teams, head about what they know about the real world. Because you can't create a model just by itself and set people loose. You, you have to take or have a theory about the real world. What drives investment performance. We know that it's it's job growth, it's population growth, it's affordability, it's barriers to entry, it's things like this. And then there's all kinds of things around the periphery that help you determine uh, those, you know, those variables and which way they're leading, right? Are you getting a population growth that's continuing and trending in that direction? Or is this just kind of a one-time event? Are you getting real jobs coming here? And you're scoring all these things. But when you're doing it in a manual way, you can only score one city at a time. And it's very laborious. And you have to take shortcuts. And, um, and so for us, it was really important to get this right. And we hired these data scientists. They're incredible. They use all kinds of spatial data analysis, linking cities together, evaluating literally millions of pieces of data, something that, that a human couldn't do, and using some serious computing power to put all these things together to ultimately arrive at a top-line rent growth. And when we started looking at this, certainly it's been an iterative process. It always will be. We'll continue to backtest it. But even version one, when we backtest it, and you backtest these things sort of blindly, you look at the data and you pretend that you're going back four years ago, but you don't know the future and you're taking this and you're looking at this, okay, what does this machine learning actually spit out before an end variable or an end product versus what did what we were using, right? The product that we were renting spit out. And what we found over and over is, is this was what we were creating was more and more accurate than what we could rent. And that really became sort of this aha moment. Hey, we've got something here. This is really, really important for what we do what we're doing, and we continue to pour money and resources and time and energy and effort into this until we really got to a product that we deem, um, we branded to your point, Origin Multilytics, that we use internally. And we use this um, both, you know, sort of a proactive way, right, to, to look at cities where we want to be, but then we also augment that 
with a boots on the ground because you can't outsource decision making to just um, predictive analytics or a machine. You have to have people on the ground. And we've had people on the ground in their markets for years. We always believe that. But it was much more of a feel. This is taking data and analytics and combining it with that field to saying, hey, this is my theme. Is this right? How does this work? And so we can go at the macro level, look at the city. We can look at the submarket. We can look at the site to really dial in and become more and more accurate. And ultimately, what that does is it, it helps us um, deliver what we're trying to deliver, which is higher risk adjusted returns, protecting capital, um, just finding better deals and protecting investor capital and growing it. And so it's been a very um, critical part of our business going forward. Uh, you know, and it's just something that now we've incorporated into our, our everyday sort of methodology. So when we go to credit committee, everything done there is, is evaluating what we're looking at on a deal by deal basis against what our origin multilytics is actually predicting. And generally, I was saying this earlier, we tend to be very conservative. And if we can make a deal work, let's say uh, rental you know, uh, rates per unit on a monthly basis, what we were looking at a deal today, and the Origin Multilytics had this particular property trading for $1,900 per, uh, per month on average. And I think we were underwriting right around 1763. And when you can make a deal work at 1760, when, uh, when the comp set out there is trading for 1800, 1850, and you're triangulating origin multilytics at $1,900, all that feels really good to point towards a yes. If you got the other, if we're looking at a pro forma and you have to price things to perfection and you need to um, command $1,900 rents and the origin multilytics is saying, hey, Rents here are really in three years going to be $1,800 and your comps are trading at $1,700. That's a pass all day. And a lot of what we do is um, it takes a lot of time and effort and technology and experience. But when you get to the end result, what I was just talking about is a lot of common sense, just triangulating this and saying, how does this feel against where the market is? Where are our cap rates today versus where the markets are? Where are the comps at? Where are the sales? And you're looking at things and there's probably like, you know, maybe four or five things that really matter when evaluating an opportunity. And rent growth is certainly one of them that we've spent a considerable amount of time getting right. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting as an LP in your fund or, or really in any fund. I think from an LP's perspective, um, I'm always looking at a sponsor's track record, right? So you want to see a management team that has a long track record of doing a lot of deals. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, as a manager, if, if you think about any skill set that any professional has, a lot of the decision making they have, you know, if they're if they're truly excellent in their field, is going to be almost on that like the stomach, like the gut level. Like you're going to have an instinct, you're going to have knowledge, and it's not even always easy to to convey. This is why I think the answer is yes, or this is why I think the answer is no, or why I think the answer is three, or or whatever it is. It's that kind of gut level knowledge that builds up with uh, a, a lot of experience. And so I think, you know, a lot of in investors are looking for that experienced management team. Um, but at the same time, even the world's smartest manager, most experienced manager is going to make a mistake, right? Warren Buffett at, at some point is going to make a mistake, a, a miscalculation. I mean, he's made plenty, you know, but, but over time it's that, it's that batting average. Right. But so the idea of uh, you know, 
a, a company that has that that management team in place with the experience and that kind of gut level knowledge, for lack of a better term. But then it sounds like you're sort of stress testing that against this external or this this more objective, not totally objective, because there's still going to be some assumptions baked in, but against this machine learning model that has data. Um, you know, is that humbling for you? Or, or is that is that the way you like it, you know, that it keeps you humble? Yeah, I is it humbling? Um I think as an organization, you know, we are always striving to make better decisions because we are managing um, a, a lot of money, right? More than a billion dollars in equity now and, you know, um, a couple billion dollars of assets. And we take that very seriously. And you have to, as an organization, continue to innovate, continue to get better, continue to make, you know, find ways to make better decisions because, you know, your competitors are doing the same out there. And we use this in two ways. And, and one, you can be proactive and it can point you in the right direction. But the other way you're talking about is when one of our deal officers, when they sort of have a, a gut reaction, right? And a lot of times it starts with that. Okay, let me let me test this with the AI, see if I'm right, see if see if this agrees with me. And by, by the way, you know, no matter how right you think you are, you always have to reserve the right to be wrong. And in these cases, you know, this is why we as a fund are diversified. We love Phoenix. We love Tucson. We love Austin and Nashville. But we wouldn't be an Austin fund. We wouldn't be a Nashville fund. We wouldn't be you know, a Phoenix fund because there's always X variables that you can't even factor in um, into these models that you just don't know. So diversification is a way to take out some of that, that X factor risk. Certainly we're um, we're all denom we're denominated in the U.S. dollar. We're only domestic here in the United States. But by being spread across different states, we do diversify diversify away some of that risk. Mm, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, especially coming off of 2020, um, I think the X factor, just acknowledgement of the X factor of stuff can happen. You know, the, the next black swan will not be the last black swan, right? Yeah, it's funny because black swans happen so frequently, they're almost predictable now. You know, you look at them every <laughs> every eight to 10 years. And I was listening to uh, a, an economist, Rosenberg Research, and he was saying that in every recession, there hasn't been a single one where we haven't had some crisis. And he went back 11 recessions. And he was talking about every single crisis that happened as a result of Fed tightening or recession, something. And it's almost like, OK, a black swan is so unpredictable that they're almost predictable in a recession. I don't know if we've seen it in you know where we are today yet, but you can bet that there's something out there. There's some leverage point, some crazy um, risk that somebody's taking that's about to get exposed in this world. Yeah, and I mean it. I think it has in the crypto market, you know, lately, and maybe that's a leading indicator. Maybe it isn't. Um, I guess I guess we'll find out. But I, I mean, I kind of agree. You know, even this idea of the the recession or, or business cycle, um, you know, you see them come and go and it's part of the processes and you know assets inflate and, and then they deflate um i want to talk about growth fund four and so i i brought up the web page uh before our episode today just to just to get a few details so i understand the fund has properties in franklin which is just south of nashville in austin tempe colorado springs and dallas and and i think I think at a retail level, at least, I kind of get the thesis of investing in these, you know, I'd call them up and coming cities. I don't know if they're considered technically prestige cities, but, you know, places that like millennials 
want to move to places where there's a lot of job growth, um, just, just a healthy local economy. But at the same time, you know, I have to, I have to ask, it seems like a lot of developers are going into these same sort of markets of, you know, the up and coming markets on the Sunbelt or, or Smile Belt or, or whatever have you. Is there a risk that this trade is, is becoming too crowded, that there's too many, you know, too many developers seeing the same thing? There's always a risk. I'm not going to say there's, you know, um, when you're investing, it's all about calculated risk. And when we're looking at sort of a high level of macro view, this country is still undersupplied significantly when it comes to housing. We're delivering 300, 350,000 a year. We, there's a demand for more than 500,000 units that's been going on for at least two to three years. COVID obviously created a little bit of a um, supply issue because you had a lot of starts that slowed down there. Certainly those are picking up today. Mm -hmm. Macro though, like I've told people this on many occasions, this is not 08 and 09. The market, we are actually feeling the effects of 08 and 09 and the lack of spec home, spec developments over the last 10, 12, 13 years that weren't created to keep up with uh, today's demand. And the demand is really being fueled by the largest demographic um, gener generation in our in the history of the United States, the millennials. They are turning 32, 33. They're in that, you know, the prime rental home buying um, ages right now. And they, you know, there's this is why we're seeing so much upward pressure on rents and home prices. And, you know, again, it's these reverberations of, of facts from 14 years ago, almost. It's kind of crazy that we're feeling this today. And I'm sure what we're living through today in COVID, we're going to be feeling the effects of this for the next 5, 10, even 20 years going out there today. Um, so, so wait, if I could just put a pin in, in one comment you made. So I, th I think you referenced the 500,000 a year is the need. Is that new multifamily housing units? And we're only creating 350. So not only is there a shortage, but you're saying the shortage is actually continuing to get worse. With yeah, each there is. Because here, here's the problem, right? You don't solve this supply issue overnight. And it's not just multifamily, it's housing in general. And so it includes for sale housing and multifamily. They combine those together. Okay. In Phoenix, for example, um, in 2005, there were half a million people who were in some way employed in real estate, construction, development, et cetera. Today, there's less than 200,000. And, and that's not unique to Phoenix. That's just one city. We know the big boom that happened there. So many people have left the industry um, permanently. And when we think about, you know, how to start that engine back up, how to, um, for the banks to be lending for spec homes and things like that, you just, you don't have the same capital markets environment. And that's a good thing. We don't want the CLOs, the CDOs, you know, all the things that really um, created the great recession. But you do have the, the fundamentals are incredibly strong today. And a lot of them, you know, the supply and demand, some of it has to do with labor. Some of it has to do with land prices. Some of it has to do just, you know, with, with the fact that um, there's a shortage of, of housing that's really helping people today who are invested in multifamily or even own their own homes in some of these growth markets. But I know it's easy. Like we're not running towards this trade. And one thing that we're seeing in these markets and the way, thing that like when we're evaluating an opportunity, whether it's Denver, whether it's Dallas, um, first of all, it's where all of the you know population is going. So our thesis is we want to be in climate friendly states. We want to be in low tax states. And 
the workforce is more mobile today than it ever has been. And what you saw happen in COVID has been happening for 40 or 50 years where you've had a migration from the north to the south. COVID accelerated that. And, and I fundamentally believe that this is the second inning. There is not going to be a reversion to the mean here. This is the second or third inning. The first wave of people, we had them at origin. We had several people who moved away to be closer to their families, to be in tax-friendly states, to, to go to Miami, to Tampa, to Austin, to Nashville, these places. All the places we're investing in for that reason. You have another wave of people, for whatever reason, the frictional you know, costs of, of where you live, for example, me, I have kids. I'm not going to pull them out of school for a lifestyle change. But in three or four years, that'll be a decision my wife and I um, have to make, right? Where do we want to live? Because the crime, the taxes, the things like of northern cities. And as much time, as I time love, to go cow, cowboy boot shopping, right? Yeah. As much as I love Chicago, <laughs> you know, at some point you're like, you know, I'm a little tired of of living in, you know, zero degrees and, you know, three, four months of the year and the the weather and things like that. It would be nice to go to some of these other it, states. You safe. know, it's funny. It's it's funny, Michael, you mentioned all that, though, because I love living in Chicago. Uh, I love Gibson's. I love the Art Institute. I mean, there's just places I love going. My wife and I, we had our first son. And so we kind of moved in that life transition because I could kind of see it coming down the pipe, um, you know, and now we're in a, a more rural area. We have five kids. I'm like, I can only imagine what life would have been like if I stuck around in Chicago. So it's kind of interesting. You mentioned that a lot of these moves happen at life transitions and COVID was kind of its own special, maybe one-off event. But but this this trend of migration to these Sunbelt states, it's not really going to slow down. And, and if anything, there are still people... Um, you know, sticking around um, other states that are still planning to move, right? So like there's still future demand what you're talking about, people possibly like yourself. Yeah, we're not concerned. I'll tell you what concerns me in the market right now when you're talking about Dallas and Austin and Nashville and Denver and these hot markets are the buyers who are buying the existing assets, the value add, the core plus, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And when we're doing development, the reason why we're not buying any value add or four plus today is because of replacement cost. And the only way that you can protect yourself in today's market is by building. That is how you are going to achieve the lowest basis in the market. And it might sound counterintuitive to build versus buy that building could actually um, be less risk than owning. But if you're buying a multifamily property, let's just say for $300,000 per unit, and you and, and the replacement cost is $260,000 per unit. And we're seeing this all over. We're seeing 10-year-old, 15-year-old properties trade forty dollars to $50,000 per unit above what today's replacement cost is. And on top of that, the developer wow. has to put in another, call it fifteen dollars to $20,000 per unit. So their basis now is three twenty, dollars and they have to make a profit on top of that in the future. So they need to sell these for $360,000. I would way rather be developing at, you know, and, and control my costs and be into a brand new opportunity at 260, $280,000 per unit than buying something new. So, so the, the, the cap rate quote unquote, then on that ground up development is actually higher than the existing property you can go buy. And then by the way, it's not going to have a leaky roof on the first day, you know, when you, <laughs> when you yeah. open up your new brand new building, right? Yeah. We use a term called return on costs and return on costs is a cap rate in the future. So you look at the, 
your net operating income that you're going to produce in year three, you back that into your costs and it's, it's the cap rate. And historically, you would have bought existing property because your cash flow would have made that difference. You would have looked at it and you said, look, I'm going to buy this property because I'm going to generate an eight to, eight to 10% cash on cash over these three years. And mm -hmm. rather than building and waiting and taking this risk, you know, right. this makes more sense. Today, that doesn't exist because people are paying three, three and a half, three and three quarter caps. We're starting to see the market move, the capital market shift a little bit, cap rates move up, but you're not generating a cash on cash yield because you're borrowing at four and a half percent. So when you're buying at three and a half, you're borrowing at four and a half, you're paying the bank every month to own a cash flowing asset, which makes zero sense. So, yeah, and I, I got to ask, uh, what is... How could this even be happening? I mean, I, I know there's like a lot of uh, roll-ups occurring in various sectors because there's this institutional money coming in that like we need to deploy a billion at a time. I mean, is it just because of these giant players that want to deploy it into an existing asset? Or why would there be such a mismatch between ground-up development and, and these existing assets? Well, for one, supply. So you're looking at limited supply and what's out there is getting bid up substantially. We talked about that earlier. And yeah. you're right, it's, it's inertia. There are some funds out there, large funds, small funds that have a mandate to buy existing properties. And so when they're competing in the market right now, especially for multifamily, you might have 10, 12, 14 people, you know, institutions that are competing to buy a single asset and bidding up the price. And, and then when you have comparables in the market and you see that properties are trading for 320,000 a door, well, that really feeds on itself because now people are like, oh, that's the market. I can pay 320 or I can pay 330. Ultimately in multifamily real estate, the governor of pricing is replacement cost. Barriers to entry aside and things like that. And this is why we don't want to be in a 15, 20 year old property above replacement cost. Because these distortions do make their way through the markets and they normalize over time. So as more and more supply comes in, your brand new properties are going to continue to hold well and hold their value and actually increase in value while these older properties are going to be declining as people are, are selling out of those and realizing that there is no market for a 20-year-old property trading above replacement cost. It's sort of what we see in the market today where you have, in some cases, used cars that are trading above new cars. As soon as we figure out this supply chain issues and the new cars start coming in there, that is going to just flip on it on its head very, very quickly. Right. Yeah, no, that's 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 a good point is, is that, you know, sometimes the answer is as simple as patience, uh, e either personality wise or just um, some people can't afford to wait, whether it's uh, deploying capital or buying a car. You know, they just have to pay whatever the current market will bear. Yeah. And Andy, I want to, um, I said before, I reserve the right to be wrong and I reserve the right to be wrong. And we have been, we've been defensively positioned now for almost um, three years pre-COVID because of what we saw back in 2019, where value add was creeping up to replacement costs. Well, at that time, by the time you were done with your basis selling, you were selling out way above replacement costs. The big shift that happened is replacement costs went way up during the last two years. So anything we didn't buy whoever bought it did very well during the last three years. But that distortion has grown so large today that there's, we don't want to touch that with a, with a 10 foot pole, you know, existing product out there. And this is why we, we really have a barbell approach today. We're lending 
to multifamily, protecting ourselves in the capital structure by having by being lower and having, you know, call it anywhere between a, a 20 and 30% cushion before mm-hmm. we lose $1. And then in development as well. And in development, what you have to keep in mind is that you're developing to a profit margin of 30, 35, even 40%. And when we're looking at development, and let's say we're putting $50 million into an opportunity, we're looking at comparable properties that are very much similar that are trading for 70, 75, $80 million. And when we're done, that's what we want to do is achieve that sort of $70 million and make our margin. In order for us to lose a dollar in development, the market has to come down significantly by about 30, 35% before a first dollar of ours is lost. And that's how you protect yourself is through that development margin and in that environment. If you're buying brand new and you're paying $70 million and the market comes down by 20% and you're leveraged, guess what? Your equity is pretty much gone at that point or you've lost 80% of it. So I'd rather be in a position where Mm-hmm. We're just making less rather than losing money. Yeah, no, I like that. Uh, you know, that's prudence. And and speaking of prudence, I want to ask about relative value. Okay. Because I know in the last episode we recorded, we talked about David Swenson and, you know, the Yale, the, the IV portfolio, the Yale endowment fund, and just that kind of overarching theory behind alts that ultimately uh, a healthy allocation to alternatives in an ultra high net worth investor portfolio uh, is attractive because you get basically higher risk adjusted returns when you go illiquid into some alts, right? You have lower volatility, at least theoretically, and then higher returns for the amount of volatility you accept. Uh, And and especially in the context, I mean, we were talking in, I, I think it was November or December of last year, where the stock market had had this huge run up, uh, and the bond market was, I mean, I, I want to say it was at historically high prices. I mean, I, I guess interest rates can go negative. Certainly real interest rates go negative. But since that time, since six months ago, now we've seen corrections in the equities markets. We've seen a correction in the bond market. I, I wouldn't necessarily say bonds are a good value right now, but they're they're a less bad value. They're, they're less of a ripoff, I would say. Um, and I don't know that I've seen the same correction in the real estate market. I mean, certainly volume has decreased, you know, the, the transaction activity has decreased, but, I, but it doesn't really see, you know, broadly speaking, I know every segment's a little different, but I don't think we've seen that price correction. So all of that being said, does real estate, do alternatives, do they still offer relative value compared to these, you know, more liquid traditional asset classes? You were talking about David Swenson and David, I actually saw him speak a long time ago and I think it was my partner, David, who asked him the question and really his secret sauce was being able to select managers and he had an entire team to be able to do this. And the reason why you want to get into the alternatives is for alpha. That's it. You don't want to go get beta. You don't want to just be in funds that expose you to the market. You want a manager who is actually um, creating value from the ground up, not through financial engineering. And, and that's a really important concept. And the other thing is that you don't just throw asset allocation out the window. It's a different way to use, um, to perform asset allocation in a portfolio. So you still need your sectors, but you're getting in the, um, through alternative managers. And real estate, 
when I mean, I think it's one of the easiest alternatives to um, expose a portfolio. And when you look at the math there, and we have this on our website, we talk to um, wealth managers all the time. But when you take a 60-40 portfolio and you add real estate, it's one of the few asset classes that no matter what period you're looking at, not only does it produce higher absolute returns overall, but, but certainly higher risk-adjusted returns too. Because if you think about real estate, theoretically, um, it's, it's a hard asset. It has predictable cash flows. It should it, it sort of behaves from an investment standpoint somewhere between a bond and a stock. Mm-hmm. And efficient market theory would tell you that, well, if it performs between a bond and a stock and that's where the risk is, well, your return should be priced somewhere between bonds and stocks. And historically, that hasn't happened. Real estate has outperformed the S&P 500 over the last five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years over this entire period. It is one of the most dynamic asset classes out there. And we've been really, um, you know, just educating a lot of wealth managers about there about the role of real estate and how to get into it and why it should be added to a portfolio. And, you know, I've always been evangelist about it. My partner, obviously, we believe in this, um, but we hired two PhDs. This goes back about five years ago because we were doing a lot in the public read sector. And we asked them to put together a paper and do some analysis for us and some studies about how much real estate actually belongs in a portfolio. And they're the ones who back-tested all this data and looked at private real estate, public real estate. And it was, it was interesting because the more they added to the port, the more real estate they added to the portfolio, the better it got. And really their conclusion was that, um, look, we just don't even feel comfortable saying that a portfolio should be 80% real estate, even though that during every period, it yeah. it performed better, so we're gonna we're gonna cap this at I think it was twenty or twenty five percent because that. Uh, I and I was just gonna mention, Michael. I, that sounds right to me because I think a lot of RIAs are moving off sixty forty as a default, and at least the ones that are kind of in tune with what we're talking about, it's more like uh, you know fifty thirty twenty with with twenty in in alternatives. But of course, of course, you're saying mathematically speaking, the twenty could be a lot higher. The 20 could be higher. We're, we're just looking at real estate when you take 20% because real estate is, is an asset class that really, um, it's more predictable. Um, so it's going to create lower volatility, cash flow, appreciation. And you were asking about what's going on in the capital markets. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the thing about the private market is, is it's still, it's not like just because you don't see it, it's not fluctuating. Mm-hmm. But as a manager, we have the ability to adjust our pricing according to what we think are reasonable adjustments. And so I'll give you an example, like the public markets right now, I follow those, especially the REIT market. And the REITs are down about 30% right now. And you can make the argument that they were too high, that they're too low now, but they're, they're subject to the whims of the market, to the emotions of the market. And sure. the, the earnings don't really change, it's just the sentiment of the market, like so many companies out there. In the private side, when we are marking assets to market, we're looking, we're, we're marking them up slowly over time. And if we see an outlier and somebody paid too much of a property, we're going to discount that. And we're going to look, you know, we're just going to get rid of it. It doesn't do us any benefit to create volatility within the portfolio by marking it up here. Then a sale happens down here and we're continually remarking things. We're looking at, hey, based on all the information we have, based on what we know about the markets, the economic value, what is the value of our assets? And I can tell you that 
the market today is different. It's lower on the private side and it's lower on the public side. Mm -hmm. The difference is that the private side hasn't been marked up as much. So you're going to see a small correction where funds are writing down 5% or 10%, whereas the public markets overshot to the top and mm -hmm. now they're marked way down and they probably overshot to the downside as well based on the information that we're seeing out there. So there is this sense of stability in the private markets because we just don't have the volatility of public markets to deal with. And we're using um, you know, information internally to get to the economic value of the deal and then ultimately the fund. Sure. So yeah, I mean, you mentioned REITs and you know, I've been saying this for a while. I, I don't really recommend investors invest in publicly traded REITs, or, or at least I didn't, certainly not last year, um, simply because it seemed to me that there's this huge liquidity premium uh, being paid for them such that, you know, they just weren't a, a good deal. Like in the, in the grand context of real estate, to me, they got too liquid and, and, you know, in the sense that, um, big funds or, or investors who just wanted an allocate allocation of real estate would invest in a public traded REIT, they became a crowded trade. But if you looked at the underlying fundamentals of the assets inside the REIT compared to the assets inside an alternative, like a, like a non-traded or illiquid alternative, the REITs were just a terrible deal. And so, as you've said, you know, if, if they've fallen 30%, I think some of that is probably just like the liquidity premium. Some of the liquidity premium has, you know, fallen away. And then some of it is, is economic adjustment. Andy, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit here. Okay. I, I'm a big fan of public REITs and it's not an or, it's an and. And okay. the challenge with only going into private is a company like ours, I can only give our investors exposure to multifamily. I can give them alpha through ground up development. The public REITs allow you to gain exposure to other asset classes that you may not even be thinking of, which is why they've outperformed the S&P 500 over so long. If you want to go, if you want to gain exposure to commodities, timber, lumber, things like that, you buy Wirehouse. Timber is one of the best investments out there. And you, you have to be careful about price to your point. But REITs are so transparent that you can you can get to the underlying net asset value to understand when you're getting a discount versus a premium and mm -hmm. paying. And they they really don't fluctuate too much around the, the true net asset values you can imagine. Um, you can get exposure to technology through data centers, through cell towers, things that we don't even think about through traditional real estate. You can take advantage of the trend in e-commerce by getting into private real estate through industrial or in public real estate in industrial on that side. So I, I really think it's an and, not an or, that um, you know, private real estate, a lot of times, especially in called capital funds, you have capital sitting around, you have deploying capital, and by using both together, that becomes the most optimal portfolio. I actually think the public markets, we would never go public for this reason or have. I think that they actually discount the true value of these REITs. And if you go back, even looking at equity office, what Blackstone did back there in 2008, Blackstone, um, and I think you're going to see this in the market today, Blackstone took equity office public and instantly created an arbitrage. They paid 40% more than the stock market was valuing the company for. Then they arbitraged it, sold everything off except for Boston, and they essentially kept a $5 billion portfolio for free. And when we're looking at cap rates in our markets today that are three and a half, three and three quarters on the private side, 
Mm-hmm. But something like Mid America Apartment Communities or Camden Property Trust that are they're also in these markets, their underlying cap rate today is like five percent. So the, the difference is though you have to be careful about saying, hey, a, a REIT is a property. REIT isn't a property. It's an operating company, and you have tens of millions of dollars of GNA that have to be allocated. So generally, the properties have to work harder, right? Um, because they have to pay all that GNA to trade at the same price. I, I hope I'm making sense there. No, yeah. I, I, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I take your point and especially, you know, after price correction, there's probably a lot more value in REITs right now, uh, certainly than there was, you know, 12 months ago. But, but you know, on the, on the question of price correction, uh, interest rates, inflation, you know, it, it, it looks to me like there's a healthy chance we're already in a recession and, and maybe uh, that information just, we, we haven't really caught up, I guess, to the news, but uh, you know, maybe not. I mean, what do you think? Do you think we're already in a recession? Do you think that's premature to say that? I think we're in a recession personally. Um, that's a guess, whether it's today, whether it's, you know, next month and six months, we're going to see a recession and it's going to look more like 2001. The Fed is uh, reducing its balance sheet. You have, you know, I think the Fed fell asleep at the wheel as well. And they're, they're way behind the eight ball here. And they have all the data and the information. Uh, inflation is not transitory. And I don't, I, I don't think we're going to have a soft landing here. And if you go back to 2001 and you look at that recession, it took 18 months um, or even longer before the stock market hit the low. And then we were in that for, for quite a long time. It wasn't even across the United States, but it took another 12, 13 years before the stock market hit a new high. And what's scary is the generation now, they only know V-shaped recoveries because the Fed stepped in in 2008. The Fed stepped in you know, during the pandemic. And, and these bear markets that just lull you into buying things, oh, look at that, it's $300. I'll buy, you know, oh, now it's 250, now it's 200. And, and we haven't seen capitulation in the market. Um, you know, so it's it's really going to be interesting. No recession is the same. And this is going to take a while to play out because of the amount of debt and the Fed's balance sheet and everything else that has to be unwound in a lot of the geopolitical events that are happening. Um, but this is the time where a diversified portfolio, having liquidity, having some cash is really uh, important for everybody out there. Yeah, I mean, but but holding cash is hard, right? If, if inflation is eight and a half percent a year, that dry powder is expensive um you know so so what are what's origin strategy then in terms of uh, of dry powder i mean are are you all uh you know waiting to see what unfolds in the next year to see if you know this creates opportunities or are you more in a hunker down and and you know yeah. execute existing projects mode or you know how does that affect your strategy we are still deploying capital and the conversation internally is about really predicting um, and taking the information in the last six months, processing it, working those into our models or variables. Because when you're looking at, we had a conversation today about um, comparable sales that happened six months ago. Well, six months ago was a different world. It was a different economy. That's when the 10 year was below 2% and everything looked normal. Now it's at you know above 3.2, 3.3% right now. And so we have to make adjustments to our model as well. But as I said before, we've been defensively positioned for three years now. And our funds, all of our funds, everything we do is about protecting 
ourselves through capital structure or through basis on that side. And we don't, we have been a net seller of assets for the last two years, right? Throughout COVID. So our fund two, our fund three, we use the strength in the market to get a lot of that risk off the table. And we've seen, um, you know, the capital markets just pull back pretty considerably. And I, I would say going into 2021, when we were getting brokers opinions of values on our deals, they would come up, I'll just make it up 70 to $75 million and we'd strike at 80. And I, in the last few months, we were getting brokers opinions of values, 70, 75 million and, and buyers were coming in there at 65, 66, $67 million. And, and we were transacting at those prices because it, it's better, you know, because that same asset that we were transacting at $67 million, well, a year ago, it was probably worth $55 million. So we think that's still a fantastic price and to get out at these levels today. And, and so in some ways, we've been de-risking our entire portfolio and then taking calculated risk on the other side where we can protect ourselves. Understood. Yeah. I mean, a, a bird in the hand beats two in the bush, right? And, you know, on the, on the topic then of defensive posturing, I'm honestly wondering, can they tame it, you know, on the inflation question? Because, you know, on the one hand, they can raise interest rates and they can send the economy into recession, you know, almost on purpose. It's, it's almost like that's what you have to do to tame inflation. Uh, but that's not going to solve the supply chain problems. You know, so so could we be in a situation where we get both, where we get sustained higher inflation and go through an, uh, a recession? Yeah, you're talking about 1970s. I think that's what everybody's concerned about is stagflation. Now, I did read some news today that was good and, and China is coming back online and they're starting to ease some of their restrictions. So that could help uh, some of this. And they will get inflation under control by very definition. But, you know, the thing about inflation, I was looking at an article from the Wall Street, uh, actually the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, and they had the inflation that went back all the way to the 1950s. And what you notice about inflation is it's it's whatever the prices are for a basket of goods, it's here to stay. It's not like you have 9% inflation and then two years later, all of these price hikes go away. It's sticky. It's here to stay. And there's only been one time in the last 60 years that we've had negative inflation. And that was in 2010 when you had the great financial recession. That was pretty awful. And but that then spiked the next year because, you know, the, the economy just shut down. Um so the you know especially when we're talking about wage inflation because it's not you know when we're hiring people we're feeling this today i belong to a vistage group of a lot of business leaders everybody's feeling the war for talent the wage inflation in there once you start giving people these new um wages you give them raises it's incredibly sticky you can't take them back right. and, and you shouldn't because they have a higher cost of living as well and inflation's out there 10% but what will happen is if you need to cut costs, you're not you know, reducing wages, you're laying people off in that situation. We've already seen a huge freeze on hiring um, from a lot of major companies out there. So to your point, all the lead leading indicators point to the fact that we are in a recession or heading for it. We've already had one quarter of negative growth, another quarter, and that's textbook um, recession. So you know, we'll see what the future holds. The US economy is resilient though. You know, this is not a time to panic. You know, just make sure that your portfolio, you know, has has good investments in it. Yep. So, you know, for our listeners, you know, Michael is is a, a prudent manager, I believe, and you know, I appreciate your candor just with 
you know, the, the balance of optimism, but also realism of what's going on. Um, and it's, it's really cool just to, to hear how, you know, that feeds into your investment strategy, which, which to me, again, I, I guess if there's one word I have in my head, it's just prudence. And, and I think that's a great stance to have as, as a steward of investor capital. And I think a lot of our listeners and visitors are probably interested in learning more about Origin Investments. So Michael, where can our visitors go to learn more about Origin and all your offerings? You go to origininvestments.com or you email me directly, michael at origininvestments.com. And Andy, I want to say one thing about what you just said, which you know is really about experience as well. And you look back at this because I've been a student of the markets for 30 years. And what I realized, and I talked to somebody, I told somebody this the other day, you have to keep investing. You can't hold you, put your head in the sand. Mm -hmm. If I would have told you that at the beginning of 2020, that there was going to be a global supply chain issue, that there was going to be a pandemic, the world was going to shut down, that all, all the Ukraine was going to war with Russia, what would you have done at that time? You would have put your head in the sand, you would have sold everything, and it would have been the worst thing that you could have done because the market had this massive bull run. So even in the face of us having all the information, we still might be wrong on what we should be doing with our money. And it's so important. The most important thing is to always be invested in the market and protect yourself along the way, however you can, whether that's through portfolio allocation um, or whatever other methods you have, but make sure that you can sleep at night. But hiding your head in the sand um, is not uh, a good strategy. Absolutely. Words of wisdom to live by as an investor. Uh, and as a reminder for our listeners, if you want links to all of the resources we discussed on today's show, including I'm going to put a link into the uh, multifamily markets to watch report, as well as a link to growth fund Four, uh, you can access our show notes at altstv.com slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on YouTube and your favorite podcast listening platform so you can receive our new episodes as we release them. Michael, thanks again for coming on the show today. Andy, thank you for having me. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 